Thanks to HelloFresh for supporting our show. Go to HelloFresh.com slash Hopeful16 and use code Hopeful16 for 16 free meals plus free shipping. Welcome to Future Hindsight, a podcast that takes big ideas about civic life and democracy and turns them into action items for you and me. I'm Mila Atmos. We focus a lot on citizen changemakers here on Future Hindsight, the people who take the big ideas and put them into action. I find these folks inspiring. They're living how-to guides about how we can take our democracy forward together. And sometimes, often in fact, these folks are working locally. I first heard about today's guest from Cecile Richards. She said, Anna Eskamani was a young organizer for Planned Parenthood, now serves in the Tallahassee legislature and is just a rock star. When Cecile Richards calls someone a rock star, I'm thinking I'd like to know more about them. Cecile had first met Anna when she was a young Planned Parenthood staffer in her hometown of Orlando. Today, Representative Eskamani represents her state's 42nd district in Orange County in Florida's House of Representatives. She's the daughter of working-class immigrants who came to Florida from Iran in search of the American dream. She went to Orange County Public Schools and then to the University of Central Florida. She earned dual degrees as an undergrad and graduate student, works as a nonprofit professional, and is now getting her PhD in public affairs. A bridge builder, Anna flipped her legislative seat in 2018 and won her re-election by an overwhelming majority in 2020 and 2022. Representative Eskamani is an unapologetically progressive. She also made history as the first Iranian-American elected to any public office in Florida. So what's her secret sauce? How do you flip and keep a seat in Florida, speak out for progressive issues, and increase your majority in a once purple, but increasingly red state? I have so many questions, but Representative Eskamani is short on time with a packed legislative agenda in Tallahassee, so let's get this started. First, welcome to Future Hindsight. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So how did you come to politics? Was there a moment, a specific incident that propelled you to run? I think for so many young people and especially women, we are motivated by parts of our personal experiences that drive us to get civically involved and to fight for our communities. And my case was no different, but I will say I I never thought politics would be a path that I would take. But I did grow up in Orlando as a working class daughter of immigrants. My parents are from different parts of Iran, but met working in the same donut shop in Orlando and made their home here in Central Florida. And I have a twin sister named Ida, a big brother named Aria. And my family did everything they could to achieve the American dream. But unfortunately, we were struck with a tragedy when my mom was diagnosed with cancer and ultimately passed away in 2004 when I was just 13 years old. So a big part of, of my desire and, and commitment in helping and empowering others comes from my own childhood where I experienced such a deep loss and the folks who were there for me were my public school teachers. The folks who were there for me were my my neighbors, my community of friends, you know, everyday working class people who don't have a lot of money to give, but they give what they can and their love and their support. And so I, I look back at that, you know, and made a decision 
to honor my mom's life through the act of empowering others, through giving back to my community. So as I got older and went to high school, then eventually University of Central Florida, um, I started getting civically involved with different campus organizations and issues. And I actually fell into reproductive rights as an area of focus by chance because my mom had passed away when I was a kid. I didn't have anyone to talk to about reproductive issues, about intimate partner violence, about protection or prevention, that I looked for answers. Then I found Planned Parenthood, that I walked into a health center when I was just 18 years old and left the method of contraception that was right for me. And that was such an empowering experience, but it also was one that left me feeling a sense of gratitude, but also concern because not every person has access to contraception. Every person has access to comprehensive sexual health education to make informed decisions. Not every person knows what consent is. And from that experience of my own healthcare journey, I started to volunteer at Planned Parenthood as a health center escort, walking patients inside our health centers when there were protesters outside. And upon graduating from UCF with my undergrad, I was offered a job at Planned Parenthood very entry level. I was the development coordinator and I basically worked to become the senior director of public affairs and advocacy. And from there, decided to run for office following the 2016 election of former President Trump. That was my manifesto, if you will, and some of the catalysts that I experienced that eventually pushed me to make the decision to run for office. That's tremendous. I love your story. It's so powerful and runs so true, right? I think a lot of people decide to run because they've had this experience where they're being empowered by others. And it's fantastic that you've decided to do the same and pay it forward in a way. So since you just mentioned your work with reproductive health, did you think then that you would be in a post-Row America with a 15-week abortion ban in your state and the governor saying he'll sign a proposed six-week ban And how do you see the politics and the real-life consequences of those things playing out over, say, the course of your current term in office? What's so unique about abortion access is it's it's not a hypothetical. It's not like some of these culture wars where it's a lot of just messaging thrown out of one another. And sometimes there are consequences, sometimes There's not, depending on how a bill is written. The goal of culture war legislation is is really just to distract and deflect. And then, of course, there are consequences in its enforcement, depending on who's doing the enforcement. As we see in Florida, culture war bills do have huge consequences, especially for marginalized communities. But what is so unique about abortion is that abortion is a healthcare topic. It's not about culture. It's about health. At least it should be. And so when you take away abortion access, you are stripping away bodily autonomy and the ability to make a personal medical decision about your future and about your destiny, which is why I've always had a commitment to abortion rights because I want to make sure that whoever you are, whatever money you have, the color of your skin, your, your family status, that you can make this personal medical decision with, with the people that that you allow to make that decision with you, whether it's your family, whether it's your doctor, whether it's your a religious leader or, or something you pray upon. It's so important that politicians stay out of that process. And 
if you asked me back in 2008 or when I started working in Planned Parenthood 10 years ago in 2012, if I would be in a post-Roe world, I, I, I think I, I honestly, I think I would have believed you because I do feel like the anti-abortion extremists are very well organized and methodical. And meanwhile, those who support abortion access have never been as brave as they need to be. And I've always felt this, you know, especially with some of my Democratic colleagues where they only talk about abortion when it's politically convenient to do so. It's the same type of Democrats that send out fundraising emails, you know, after the fall of Roe when they should have been raising money for abortion funds. And I, I never want to be too critical of my colleagues, but I, I think when you see that type of transactional behavior when it comes to defending abortion rights, no wonder we've lost our rights. Like you can't be transactional about it. You have to focus on breaking the stigma and telling stories and uplifting those who are directly impacted and codifying abortion rights when we have the votes to do it. And so I feel like I was mentally prepared for the fall of Roe, but it's not something I ever wanted to see. And of course, it pains me to think about how today's generation of, of young people are inheriting a world that has less rights than their ancestors did. And so what does that mean for the larger landscape? Well, in particular, I think Americans are waking up. I think the those who have ignored the issue can no longer ignore it. And we've seen some incredible wins, you know, especially in red states where abortion has been on the ballot. And despite the makeup of the legislature, voters have showed up to say, we want to defend this. We want to protect this. So I, I do have optimism and hope. And I, I hate to say it, but sometimes you got to lose what's in front of you before you realize what you've lost. And I think for you know so many Americans who thought that this was settled, that you know, having it be stripped away from them is what it needed to happen for them to wake up and get more involved. And of course, the consequences of that are so dire and devastating. And we have folks who are being forced to give birth, folks who are seeing their medical information be violated, folks who are experiencing near death until a doctor feels comfortable providing them with an abortion. But at the same time, you know, for those who are not traditionally impacted, they now feel impacted. And that's the type of momentum we need to go beyond Roe so that we don't just stop at the bare minimum, but that we actually go beyond it and, and use a reproductive justice framework. Because let's be real, for so many people, especially black and brown folks, they never even had a choice because they couldn't afford the abortion. They didn't have a provider near them. And so we can't use the old framework. We, we have to reimagine a new one. And in the interim, while we fight what is now going to be a six-week abortion ban in Florida, we're, we're already boosting our abortion funds. We're trying to figure out, you know, what is the network we need to protect our collective rights and ensure access. And we're in conversation of a potential ballot amendment in Florida because I, I do think that the voters agree with us that abortion should remain safe and legal. And we have, have to give them a choice to, to codify that. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. Well, for years, we were told that abortion didn't really matter to voters. And to your point earlier, that the only people who really cared about it were anti-abortion activists. Right. But as it turns out, it does. It does matter to voters. What are the other issues that are important to your constituents that are overlooked and not given enough attention? Great question. I mean, I would say economic issues and, and issues of tax fairness. So I serve as the ranking member of the Ways and Means Committee. So though I came to the legislature with a background in reproductive health and, and access, I was appointed to committees where I had 
no background in whatsoever. And that's on purpose, right? When you're in the minority in the context of the floor legislature, you don't get to decide your committees. You don't get to decide your parking spot, your office space. Everything is dictated by leadership. And so I, I filled out my little committee form requesting what committees to serve on, but I did not get any of my requests. So I was placed in some pretty dry committees, and that included Ways and Means. And so I started diving deep into tax policy, and I've now become the ranking member of the Ways and Means Committee in the Florida legislature, which means I lead the Democratic voice on taxation. And we are championing consumer protections and consumer tax breaks. We're also fighting for corporate accountability and to ensure that corporations are paying their fair share. And this is an issue where, again, I, I feel like my colleagues on the right and the left tend to overlook because maybe it's too convoluted. Maybe it doesn't have the same type of media attention. Maybe it doesn't get you know, the same bumper sticker slogans, whatnot. But it is an issue my constituents care about because they pay taxes. And it's not OK where corporate actors can get exemptions and loopholes and not pay their fair share while the rest of us do. And the reason why it's important to also champion this issue is that if we don't collect those corporate dollars through their tax responsibility, then we can't pay for anything else. We can't pay for new roads. We can't pay for our teachers and their salaries. We can't pay for social services like food stamps or unemployment compensation or childcare needs. And so it's, it's all tied together with just your basic cost of living and your ability to have support in the benefits that we provide you know, as, as government. And so my constituents every single day, they are worried about ensuring that we have a roof over their head and food in their belly. So affordable housing is a big issue for us. And also renters' rights. You know, we don't have renters' rights in Florida. Florida is one of the worst states for tenant protection. So I have filed legislation to strengthen that. We're also fighting for you know the most marginalized among us. Florida has a wait list for people with disabilities that is 20-some thousand people long. So we advocate to eliminate that wait list and put money towards the agency for persons with disabilities so we can make sure that folks receive the care they need and can have the ability to live independent lives. So there's there's so many issues that my constituents care about every single day, but I will tell you that the culture war bills in front of me do not reflect what my constituents are asking me to do. And so I, I do try to provide the counter and the contrast by focusing on real-life issues versus the manufactured culture war debates. We're taking a quick break to thank our sponsor, HelloFresh. And when we come back, Anna Eskamani speaks my love language, good governance. But first, flavor is in full bloom at HelloFresh. Enjoy the taste of spring with chef-crafted recipes featuring ripe, seasonal ingredients delivered right to your door. When the spring sunshine is calling your name, don't call for takeout. Get HelloFresh instead. Go to HelloFresh.com hopeful16 and use code hopeful16 for 16 free meals plus free shipping. HelloFresh cares about quality. That's why their seasonal ingredients are picked at peak ripeness and travel from the farm to your home in less than seven days. So you know they're fresh. And this May... HelloFresh is celebrating Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. Try limited-time authentic recipes created in partnership with Chef Serbi Sani of New York City's Tagmo restaurant and enjoy a cultural taste tour right in your own kitchen. 
I'm super excited to try the sweet chili pork and cabbage stir-fry in my next order. And the best part? It will be ready in just 20 minutes. Go to HelloFresh.com Hopeful16 and use code HOPEFUL16 for 16 free meals plus free shipping. I also want to share about a podcast presented by Betches Media called Betches Sup. Staying informed doesn't have to be painful. In this news and politics podcast presented by Betches Media, Amanda Duberman, Elise Morales, and Millie Tamarez run through the week's wildest headlines with accessible analysis and commentary you will actually relate to. Their episodes bring fact-based news delivered with humor, plus interviews with members of Congress, candidates, activists, comedians, and political experts to discuss WTF is going on and how we're all getting through it. For constant news updates, sign up for the SUP email newsletter at betches.co forward slash SUP and follow them on Instagram at betches underscore SUP. That's B-E-T-C-H-E-S underscore S-U-P. Make sure to tune in to the Betches Sub podcast every Monday through Thursday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, let's return to my conversation with Anna Eskamani. I'm really interested in how you think about good governance. Uh, and you mentioned you just proposed some bills. What are your goals and what have been some of your wins when it comes to that sort of bread and butter stuff of local politics? Yeah, I love this question. I'm actually getting my PhD in public administration at the University of Central Florida, where I study good governance. And my dissertation actually will be focused on the use of social media in the context of emergency management systems and the deployment of unemployment compensation. During the, the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, we saw devastating unemployment in Florida, and many people turned to the unemployment system that was ill-equipped, underfunded, and did not perform the way they needed to, where people were waiting months to receive their benefits at times. So our office actually championed constituent services. We delivered relief to more than 50,000 Floridians who contacted our office to get their unemployment benefits. And so from that, I gleaned a lot when it comes to just the government use of communications and ways to get out guidance information to people who need it. And so we do find some common ground on you know, issues of good government, you know, in particular when it comes to supporting survivors of sexual assault and domestic violence. You know, we've had success in Florida. One of the bills that I filed that eventually would pass once we found bipartisan support has since created a online portal for survivors of sexual assault to track their rape kit, to know where it is, to know if it's been tested or not, and to really be in charge of their personal data in that way, to figure out what is their path to seek justice. We were able to secure a one-year tax break in all children's diapers last year, and that was also one of the bills that I have filed, and I filed Another bill this session to make that tax break permanent, but to also expand it to adult and contents products. I also just try really hard to hold agencies accountable. You know, Florida does not have a Department of Labor. We have a what's called the Department of Economic Opportunity. We also don't have a housing department. So even just navigating state government and the resources provided by state government is very convoluted for the everyday person. So we try to cut through that red tape. You know, if you have an issue as a small business owner with the Department of Business and Professional Regulations, we will assist you with that. 
If you have an issue with food stamps through DCF, we will assist you with that. So we also try really hard to model good governance ourselves by helping to connect point A to point B and getting you an answer from your state government. You know, with that, I've also filed other bills regarding closing corporate tax loopholes and trying to strengthen safety nets. I have a huge housing bill as well called the Keep Floridians House Act. And part of that bill not only includes renter protections, but it would create a housing and homelessness prevention department to house all of these different types of support services. And, you know, I, I try really hard to just find the common ground when possible on issues of good government. It's easier said than done, but I find issues of government transparency, issues of efficiency, issues of the integration of you know online technologies while still addressing the technology gap for some Floridians. I have found that those areas have been opportunities for common ground. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it's very impressive what you do, not only on the constituent service, but also in trying to pass and successfully passing some legislation that really directly affects your constituents. So you just mentioned that it's hard to find common ground sometimes. How can you get some of that good governance, nuts and bolts stuff done when you're in the minority? And, uh, you know, along those lines, what have been your biggest ahas about working with the other side? <laughs> so great questions. I mean, folks should know that I'm a very strong and vocal Democrat. Like, I am not a wallflower. I ask a lot of questions. I have been filing amendments on bills that are not even in my committee and just kind of showing up and causing chaos, right? <laughs> so I I try really hard to, like, draw a line in the sand of, like, this is where I stand. I actually just did an amendment on the House floor on a on the permalist carry bill because despite my Republican colleagues loosening gun laws in Florida, we are so prohibited by allowing guests to bring guns into meetings of the legislature. So I filed an amendment to strike that language with the point of if you think guns make us more safe, why don't you allow guns in the committee rooms? And of course that amendment failed. So I I, I tried to do what I can to like amplify the hypocrisy in this process and to Again, amplify the voices of my constituents. With that said, finding common ground first just starts with a relationship. So it's it's being honest, it's being direct, it's being firm but kind. And so I every day lead with both grit and grace in an effort to not isolate my colleagues on party ideology, but to try to identify what what we do share in our values. And from there, finding common ground. You can't get anything done in the Florida legislature unless you work across the aisle. There's just no way. And so I have already one memorial that has passed this first committee stop, and I have two bills on deck to be heard in the first committees. And I could not do that if I was consistently bombastic or aggro or you know, shaming my colleagues. Now, I will say, especially if you follow me online, I'm not afraid to call people out, but I'm just a firm believer in calling people in before I call them out. So I try really hard to see if they even understand the harm of their bill or the, the harm of the policy proposal, the harm of their comment before I call them out. And I think that that alone makes a big difference because at the end of the day, we're all human. Many of my Republican colleagues, they don't necessarily believe the bills they're filing. They're just doing it because someone told them to. And so to just be really thoughtful to, like, what is their personal motivation? 
What do they understand or don't understand about the bill in front of them? And what can I do to try to build that trust to sway them in their vote? And then, of course, if I'm not successful in swaying, we we continue to build accountability in the ecosystem around them. But I think a part of it, too, is just not having any ego. Some of our success has been tied to not worrying about who gets credit. Because some of the bills that I've been able to pass, I wrote the bill, but I give it to someone else, right? And the same thing with the state budget. I have projects in the budget that are not necessarily my name to it, but they are my projects that I've helped someone else file. So I think it's also about like realizing that effectiveness is not measured by the title or by how many times your name is next to something. It's also just about getting the job done. Oh, wow. Very impressive. I want to pivot to your elections, your races. Did you expect to win the first time? Was it an upset? But then also, I noticed that you increased your margin of victory in your re-election in 2020 and in 2022. What do you think were the key ingredients of your success? That's a great question. My first campaign was very difficult. And I do think that that, that experience, it, it gave me a lot of just a sense of efficacy and resilience because it's not easy campaigning, let alone being a woman, a woman of color campaigning as my opponent attacked me in every way you can think of and really tried to demonize me as a daughter of immigrants, as a young person, as a woman. And so you build really thick skin in that process pretty quickly. But I will say, I feel foundationally that our formula for success is showing up for people. We are at the doors, not just during campaign season, all the time. We're constantly in the community. We are navigating constituent services, trying to help folks solve problems. And we we represent the values of our community. We listen to our community. If there's a position that they hold, we try to share that position with our peers. I'm also not afraid to pick a side. And I do think that your voters, they want you to pick a side. They might not agree with you every time. But expressing an opinion and sticking to it is a demonstration of courage, and people want that. They, they want a happy warrior, not someone who just you know pushes papers. And so our last election, we saw an 11% greater turnout than the rest of Orange County in our district. And I do think that was in large part to just our, our work ethic, but also the fact that we connect with our constituents in every way possible, whether it's at the doors, at community events, you know, we, we visit nonprofits, we, we talk to students in classrooms, we, we are very engaged with all the different sectors of our economy. And we also fight like hell, you know, for results. Our slogan is working for you, fighting for us, which was not a slogan that we had when I first ran for office, something that we developed over time, because it reflected who we are, that we're working for you and fighting for us. And I, and I do think that's a, that, that is a part of our success. Mm, That's a great slogan. So is there something other Florida Democrats can take away from your success? Or what advice do you have for the National Democratic Party? Because I feel like it would be good to bottle whatever you have got going on. (laughs) I mean, I think a part of it is like stopping so corporate. You know, I don't take any money from the utility companies, from the sugar industry or any ag industry. I don't take money from theme parks. I don't take money from private prisons, from banks. I mean, these are these are all really big companies in Florida, and I don't take a penny from them. I never have and I never will. And that has allowed me to be really vocal and transparent, you know, on my positions and to also fight for my community. 
I mentioned renters' rights earlier. So many of my Democratic colleagues don't champion renters' rights because they, they accept money from the Florida Apartment Association. They accept money from different corporate landlords and whatnot. And so it holds them back from championing good consumer protections that people need us to lead on. Same can be said for climate change and energy policy. You know, we have so many bad bills in this process that strip away rooftop solar and empower the fossil industry. And many of my Democratic colleagues vote for it because they take money from FPL, they take money from these companies. And again, I'm here to remind folks that that is not a, a path to success because when you when you self-censor yourself, that means you can't appeal to your voters on issues that matter to them. If you take money from the utility companies, you will be limited in how you're able to talk about the rising cost of utility rates. It's that simple, you know, and, and yes. a lot of folks tell me, well, it doesn't impact my vote. But then I see the vote and it looks like it did, you know, and 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 if it doesn't impact your vote, it definitely impacts your messaging. Like I'm able right. to send letters to the Public Service Commission, which is our, you know, consumer board, if you will, for utilities, which is all appointed by the governor and they all do whatever utility companies want them to do. And I'm able to be that vocal because I I, I don't care what FPL says. And it is so important for us to be able to champion that as Democrats because that's what people need us to do. And Republicans have been trying to co-opt populism and trying to pretend like they're for the everyday person. And yet their policies, whether it's taxation or the budget or the bills they push, don't reflect that whatsoever. We have a big anti-worker bill right now that will bust unions in the state of Florida. So the, the evidence is the contrary. But if we have, as Democrats don't champion those issues and are willing to challenge the status quo, that we're not going to stand out as those fighters. We're not going to stand out as those visionaries who offer an alternative vision for the country, one that is collective prosperity and one that centers on the needs of everyday people over the biggest corporations. Right. Well, I know that you're pressed for time. So I have just one last question. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? This is easy for me. It's the next generation of young people. You know, I'm so blessed. My congressman is Maxwell Alejandro Frost, the first ever Gen Z member of Congress who I helped get elected. I endorsed him and campaigned with him and did what I could to get him to that finish line. And, you know, he is an indicator of so many amazing young people that I have been lucky to call members of my team that have come to Tallahassee to advocate for their futures And there's a reason why Republicans, and Ron DeSantis in particular, has gone after education, whether it's K-12 or higher ed. It's because he knows that there is an inevitable shift in the electorate, especially as conservative ideals become more outdated and their voter base ages on. Young people become the majority voter base. And so we need to empower our voters and support young people, help them thrive, help them become advocates because they really are the future. But if we're not intentional now, we will not set them up in a world that will allow them to grow. And so young people are what give me hope every single day. Mm -hmm. Yes, here, here. And I, I think you're right. We have to be intentional about it now. Thank you very much for joining us on Future Hindsight. It was really a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Anna Escamani serves in the Florida legislature as the representative for the state's 42nd district. Next week on Future Hindsight, we'll be talking with Beto O'Rourke. He's a fourth-generation Texan and the former U.S. representative of Texas's 16th congressional district. 
He was also the Democratic Party's nominee for the U.S. Senate in 2018, a candidate for the Democratic presidential nomination in 2020, and the Democratic nominee for the 2022 Texas gubernatorial election. We discussed the importance of Texas politics for the nation and his book, We've Got to Try, How the Fight for Voting Rights Makes Everything Else Possible. National Democrats have no clue about Texas. I, I wish they would. And many of us, I'm, I'm just one of many, have tried our best to get the attention of the national party, of our national leaders, of the president, about the importance of this state, not just to our political prospects, certainly that's important as a Democrat, but really to the democracy of this country. I mentioned how tenuous our democracy is in Texas, but Mila, you know that it's under attack in a very precarious position in this country at large. That's next time on Future Hindsight. Have you checked us out on Instagram yet? We've got a bunch more tips to help you build your civic action toolkit. Follow us on Instagram at Future Hindsight Pod to get special updates, episode clips, and everything in between. This episode was produced by Zach Travis and Sarah Burningham. Until next time, stay engaged. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.